I need to turn my hope into action. And instead of fear, I need to turn my fear into the creativity that it is. Because fear is wasted creativity and hope is worthless without action. Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. This week on Improbable Developments, we are continuing our Emerging Researchers series. In this series, we are talking to some people who are just starting their careers. Our hope is that by hearing their stories, including their ambitions and worries, you will be able to learn more about what it takes to pursue a career in science. This time, we are talking to Robin Powers. Robin is a rare disease patient and advocate. She recently got her bachelor's degree in biochemical pharmacology of rare disease. More about that later. You know, Robin, we grew up in the same area in Western New York, and I, I think I moved to Connecticut just before you were born, but my family still lives back there in the area. And I was like running into someone who knows that beef on wick came long before anybody thought of chicken wings um, as the food of Buffalo. So I think the best place to start understanding your history is to get an introduction and, uh, and hear about your disease, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Uh, if I'm going to try and make this sound basic for others to understand, the Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes are a subset grouping of connective tissue disorders that can be inherited, rarely will present de novo or at random, and are varied both in how they affect the body and in their genetic causes, and more likely, hint, hint, with other biological mechanisms involved. They are generally characterized by joint hypermobility, joints that stretch farther than normal, skin hyperextensibility, skin that can be stretched farther than normal, and tissue fragility, like your skin could easily break or will have problems with healing. The Ehlers-Danlos syndromes are currently classified into 13 subtypes. So which type do you have? Um, so I have type hypermobility Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And then also, since I have not been genetically typed with the connective tissue, essays. Um, I'm also considered undiagnosed, so I could have more than one type. Um, and then also they are saying that I may have another connective tissue disease on top of that, which we've already kind of identified. It's They're saying right now it's like an atypical lupus or like atypical mixed connective tissue disease. And I'm like, you guys just have to put atypical in there, don't you? It's just, mine's very complicated. Yeah. Well, and I think you're not the only person with a rare disease who has more than one. Um, I, I know um, Marla Jan, uh, I can't remember Marla Jan's last name, but she has six ribbons tattooed on her neck, all different colors for different rare diseases. You know, it's common among folks with rare disease that there's more than one. When and how were you diagnosed? 
Um, so I was diagnosed. Um, well, originally what happened was I had found the answer of Ehlers-Danlos hypermobility syndrome at the age of 17, I believe it was. And I presented it to my primary doctor and he told me that I could not have it because it was too rare. And I said to him, that does not make any sense. Just because something is rare does not mean that I cannot have it. I will be back with proof from a geneticist. And I did not actually know then that I could ask for the referral. I thought they had to give you the referral. So I had to go through all these steps to get to a geneticist. Then eventually I got pregnant and then I told them that I did have a history known of at least the hypermobility spectrum disorders, but that I highly believed that it was Ehlers-Danlos syndrome hypermobility. So then they took a, they, um, they sent my son and I to the genetics at what is now called Oshai Hospital, but then it was called Women and Children's and it was a UBMD grouping of physicians. And that's um, the genetics department that is available in this area. And pretty much with EDS, um, in this area at least, um, you kind of just get a diagnosis and then they just kind of like leave you hanging. It's really confusing because you don't know up from down still. And you're like, man, I thought that I just got to the ending of something where like there could be some ideas for what we could do to possibly help, but no, they've got really nothing. So you've got to kind of start from scratch and realize that there is no treatments, there is no cures, and you're going to have to figure out with your doctors and learn on your own independently what will work for your symptoms and what will not, because all that they can unfortunately do is... Oh yeah, palliative care is the, the care that's given to reduce suffering, reduce pain, and it doesn't treat the underlying issue. It just minimizes those symptoms that you see. And so how has EDS impacted your life since then, since you were diagnosed? Um, EDS has very greatly impacted my life since I was diagnosed because after I got diagnosed, I did go back to that doctor and he was still my primary at the time. He's my son's primary right now. Um, and I took the piece of paper and I slapped it right down on the table. And I was like, look at that. He turns it over and he looks at it and he did exactly what he promised me that he would do, which was shocking because I didn't actually think a doctor was going to do this, but I did prove him wrong. And it did say what I said that it was going to say. And it was from a geneticist, you know, in Buffalo that, you know, he knew of and all. And it's, you know, he said, congratulations. And I said, on what? And he said, on doing my job as he shook my hand and he hugged me. And then you know, he just, he said, I'm sorry. And I said, for what? And, and he said, for letting you fall through the cracks. I will never let another patient fall through the cracks again. And I will teach other physicians about this and other rare diseases because they are not as rare as I or anybody else in medical school ever learns or perceives. And then oddly enough, I actually met a doctor that learned from my old doctor, Dr. Gregory Shank. Um, you know, he learned from him about Ehlers-Danlos syndrome because of me and because of this promise that my doctor had made to me. So like I saw it years later when he wasn't actually my primary still, he was still carrying it out and still actually living, you know, holding on to that memory of what I showed him and what I taught him, which is actually very impactful and amazing, I think, personally. Absolutely. The, the ripple effect of that event, you know, other, other physicians now knowing to look for zebras when when you hear when you hear hoofbeats, you know, don't just rule it out. Um, but that's that's really impactful. So we talked a little bit about care. How are you actually treated today? What treatments are you undergoing? 
it's it's interesting. Um, so like right now during COVID, unfortunately, there are not as many treatments right now because I would need to travel. And I did have traveling arrangements set up and stuff to like go to Boston, get some more testing done and everything, and hopefully be helped more, but that is not happening because of COVID. So currently, I mean, unfortunately, uh, in Buffalo, New York, rheumatologists seem to be allergic to the fact that they are supposed to be my primary, according to the American Association of Rheumatology. So whenever I go to one, they say, ah, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, we don't treat that here. And I'm like, really? You're going to tell me that you're not going to treat me because of my one disease? But that actually happens. So I end up with a primary, normally, who handles most of my care literally through me advocating for my needs, her understanding them, and then agreeing with me, and then me doing more than half of the medical billing and all the prior offs and paperwork and referrals. And it's just a lot of, it's so much work. Like I, I deal with the work of a physician, a doctor, and a medical biller is what I've been told. Consuming, so I do get care now. So I get, I get finally after five years of advocating for my pain management back after it was taken away during the opiate epidemic start, which I don't really quite agree with all of that, but that's a whole nother ballgame. <laughs> but um, I finally did get back some pain management, um, but it's not quite enough. It, but we're teetering on quite, kind of being there. So I'll, for the first time in five years, I'm almost getting back to myself. And it's a little bit scary because I know that I could end up losing all of that care in a heartbeat frightening to me. And I'm just like, can we just stop with, with the odysseys maybe? I believe in a lot of people with hypermobility and there's Danlos syndrome that have symptoms that are not explainable underneath their current diagnoses. But still, yes, I would just love to end the odysseys because I'm on like 20 medications and like people are like, are, do you just have a pharmacy or something with you? I'm like, no, I'm like, I need these to live like this is, and they're like, that must be fun. And I'm like, no, nothing about this is fun. I don't count. Some people are like, you get on drugs. I'm like, what are you guys thinking? I'm like, if you and I'm like, oh, you want the medications? You get to take all the diseases with you, and then nobody takes that deal. <laughs> nobody, not even other fibros. Clear to me that that you are a self learner, and you've been a self driven learner, a lifelong learner since you were young. Um, so, can we talk about your formal education path and what you originally started at? So, you were going to Erie Community College (ECC). What were you studying there? I guess I'm going to start back to high school just because that's when it began um because they noticed in my uh my sophomore year that i was smart and i was like oh you guys just noticed that i'm smart well you guys just haven't asked the right questions this is literally what i told them because i was like i've been smart this whole time you guys just haven't been asking the right questions because i was in you know human anatomy or uh, human biology i think is what it was called in high school because it's a little bit fuzzy back there <laughs> so after they discovered that i was very intellectual in thinking, uh, and that I should probably be pursuing something in the sciences realm because I did so well in human biology. I got the top A. I was the A to beat. Uh, I was the one to beat in advanced chemistry, and then I took AP biology and AP chemistry and physics, and I did this all in my you know sophomore, junior, senior years. And uh, I actually was only there for one third of the amount of time. They said attendance-wise because of how unhealthy I was. Um, but I still graduated in the top 100, I think, or maybe just under 100. And there was over 400 people in my class, I believe, which is not bad for having a lot of rare diseases. And I, you know, I graduated with an advanced regents diploma um, with AP credits to go on with some designation in English, which doesn't really mean that much. Um, so then I went to ECC and um, 
I took my SATs, but I didn't really concentrate on it too much because I knew that while I do have a lot of intellectual potential, I don't have a lot of means to, you know, foster it with money because yes, it does cost money, unfortunately. So I went to ECC because I wanted to do all of the prerequisites at the cheapest college that I could where I knew it would still be a quality education and then transfer to a bigger college to either UB is where I was originally thinking. And I was going to do actually pharmacology and toxicology, one of the programs they have because they have a few different ones. Um, and then I decided that I didn't really like UB because it's so big and I'm disabled and so hard to get around. I could not make it to the next class, you know? So I had one really bad semester there and I just dropped out there. And I then transferred to Buffalo State instead. And before I did, I worked with them with the accommodations over the summer, you know, to make sure that everything was in line as much as it could be, even though, boy, were there bumps in the road. Because, yeah, I had to prove my biochemistry teacher incorrect because he was like, Elmer's Daniel syndrome can't be real, is what he was saying to my long lost friend, uh, Dr. Roswell Park, who passed away from a rare cancer um, just this year in April. They used to live two doors down from each other. And um, he, he was talking to my biochemistry teacher and he's like, talking about Dr. Goodman, he's like, you know, you could have just Googled Enlers-Danlos syndrome because it is a real disease. And I just want to prepare you because one of my students is going to be in your biochemistry class next semester. And she's going to come up to you and she's going to say, so I'm going to be gone for this week because I have to go to a medical conference as I've been asked to present my poster at the National Organization for Rare Disorders conference in 2018 making me the first one to go on a scholarship that was meant for students without fitting into their normal criteria because they noticed that my atypical criteria, which is at least the way that they describe it at Buffalo State, a lot of my professors, they say that I'm very atypical, you know, did actually fit into their conference enough, more than enough. So then they actually changed their international policy to include any student from any academia, from any country on the student scholarship, which is literally amazing. I was not trying to do that. But I guess I was impressive, and they did love my poster, which it was co-authored with my friend Rachel. Uh, she actually she 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 did most of the editing and the the design more because I'm better with the words and she's better with the pithy, you know. So she pithed it up a little bit, and she was the one that came up with such the beautiful design that it has, and it's proudly displayed, you know, at Buffalo State College in the Science and Mathematics Complex. So there you go again. There's another ripple that you created. I know that's one big ripple that I just had to mention because I did not expect them to say yes. You know, I just was like, well, could we maybe consider just allowing me to apply, please? Because I do have this research, you know, this poster abstract that I did for you guys. And it is based off of three things of my own publications, actually, and then cross-referenced with other sources. So it's pretty good. And maybe if it's good enough, you guys will let me go. And they were like, please apply. And, and then they, they said yes. <laughs> and it was very amazing, you know. The ripple I see is the, in the rare community, almost every parent or patient becomes an expert in this thing that they never wanted to be an expert in. And for NORD, National Organization for Rare Disorders, to change their policy to recognize that is fantastic. So you've benefited other people. And, you know, they put me in their rare disease e news thing. They put out two different things one for my book release, um, and then one for you know, the international policy with like a picture of all of us, you know, and it's just, it was just so nice. It was just so nice. So I'm really interested to hear about your bachelor's degree program. Yeah, this is really cool. So it's called the Biochemical Pharmacology of Rare Disease, which is on one hand, very broad, 
and on one hand, very narrow. And it, it lumps some things together that people may not have put together. Tell me about how you got to that and what it is and what you had to do to get the degree. It's actually an interesting story. So like, I'm very glad that UB didn't end up working out because you know what? I'm very atypical and I love that. I love that they just call me the atypical girl. It works for me. I love novelty. Novelty is a great thing. It always carries through well. You know, it's always something that's remembered. So I was like, I want to do something that's a little bit different. And then I found out there was an individualized studies program at Buffalo State College where you can design your own problematic theme and then you write a defense paper, basically. So originally it was a little bit different, but then I wrote a new defense paper where it was for the biochemical pharmacology of rare diseases. I decided that I wanted to make my weakness into my strength because my weakness in societal eyes or in normal, I guess, whatever normal is eyes, was always that I'm disabled. And that was always seen as, you know, you will never be productive. You will always be a burden is actually what my own mother said. She said she will always be a burden to society um, emotionally and, you know, financially because she's on so many medications and she's so sick. It's interesting because part of that's also what drove me to do this. You know, I was just like, you know what, we're going to make my weakness now into my strength. So that's how I came up with biochemical pharmacology of rare diseases. Because when you think about it, when you're dealing with a rare disease, medicine all comes down to biochemistry at the end. At the end of the day, I believe all human medicine is really, it's all biochemistry. It's all biochemical interactions. And then also pharmacology is a very important part because with rare diseases, there's not much that you can do except for slap some band-aids on the symptoms. So that's where the pharmacology comes into place. But it actually is a real program without the rare disease part at the University of Buffalo. And I did model my program after their program as closely as I could because some of the classes do differ. So while you were there, what was your favorite undergraduate class that you took? What one really caught your imagination? Uh, one of them is, um, would definitely be advanced in organic chemistry. And because it was very hard and everyone else was really afraid to take it. But I said, you know what, why not? I want to take it. So that's why I'm taking it. So literally, I took it just because I wanted to. And everyone else changes their degrees from this chemistry degree to the um, forensic chemistry degree or whatever, because you don't have to take that class with him. He's actually retired, but he's a very hard grading professor. So I got a C minus, but you know what? A C minus with pride, because a C in the chemistry department is a good grade, oddly. But a C from Durfee with only three people in the class, with it not being really my, you know, full forte, because it involved group theory and complicated calculus, and I didn't even take calculus. So the fact that I got a C minus in it and that I taught him a lot and that he called me a philosopher, which I've noticed is totally correct. And a little bit annoying. Um, it just it taught me a lot, and that's why it's one of my favorite classes. Your learning ability, your learning drive, the, the challenges are, are what's fun. Learning just the stuff that people know, that's no fun. That's not new. That's no fun. It's it. That's what I've always thought. No, and everyone has always been like, well, you, Robin, you cannot be a artist and a scientist. I'm like, well, you cannot be in anything without being both because everything is both. This is what I was telling people in high school because my high school counselors are like, well, you can't be an artist and a scientist. You have to pick one. I'm like, uh-uh, you guys are totally seeing this wrong. Everything is an art and a science because when you apply your knowledge to society, that is an art. Personally, I believe that it's an art. And I say that with a lot of pride because it's a skill and an art and a trade when you're then applying all of the scientific knowledge you've got jumble up in there. I would just introduce them to my friend Leonardo da Vinci, who could do art and science really, really well. And you just said something interesting that it's all jumbled up in there. 
that's an active mind that's that's just got so much going and it's it's hard to like crystallize and, and get it to come out and that's the challenge for all scientists oh it is okay then i feel more normal because i've started to think that i was going crazy a little bit because i think out loud a lot and i'm like i'm talking to myself out loud all day about random philosophies that i'm applying i'm like is this normal i've been hearing yes but i'm just like really <laughs> it's not uncommon for scientists to be atypical but also when they know something so well that it's hard to communicate it there's a communication center at SUNY Stony Brook. It's called the Alda Kavli Center. And it's Alan Alda, who was in the MASH. And what they do is they teach scientists how to communicate to real people. And they actually teach them how to empathize and, and improv and be able to talk. That's my dream. I did not know that that existed at, at anywhere because I've been like, you know, I'm going to bring the hope back into the Hippocratic Oath because it's lost, because they've lost empathy and lost sympathy. They've lost compassion, honestly. I don't know. A lot of doctors agree with me and agree with those ideas, which we will get into at the end. <laughs> now you're going for a master's degree. And, and what's, what's your master's degree that you're studying for? Uh, currently, my master's degree is a public administration and with a focal point in nonprofit administration. It's not exactly my forte because I'm such a scientist that I yearn for that science that I'm actually in a graduate biology course only because he wants me in there because he loves my atypical commentary. He was like, I really want you in the class because you will bring conversation to it that we will not be able to do because you can just talk and talk and talk. And this is class is going to be on Zoom or whatever. So I'm going to need you to help me guide through this class because we're doing um, case studies and stuff like that. And he's like, and you're your own case study. And he's like, I really want you. So he's like, so please stay in my class. I was like, are you kidding me? I was only going to leave if you had, if you made me like the chemistry department did, you know, I was glad that I still have this permanent override in the biology department in the graduate studies because a professor gave it to me. Cause he's like, you know what? You can take our class rent. I was like, yes. So do you have any ideas what your, what your master's thesis is going to be? Actually, yes, I've got, uh, one that's already been proposed to a professor and it's going to be for this semester at least i'm not it's going to still be a master's thesis because they want 15 to 20 pages i guess and they want a lot she wants interviews and all different sources of of types because it's a, supposed to focus on nonprofits. um and my proposed study is is there health privilege existing within the rare disease sector of the community and that's the question that i posed and then I posed why, you know, and she found it to be very interesting and she actually loved it. She was like, I know this is based off of your life and your world and what you experience. So I really want this to actually be really good. And I was very shocked because I was, I had this late midterm that I owed the professor and I was running behind because my arm was broken, but she was like blown away by this little blip that I had sent you. I remember very quickly, but that's all I had only gotten a little bit of information of you. Like, well, you know, it's kind of an iffy topic, but I just threw it out there and she loved it. And she was like, we're going to go the mile and the distance with this. She's like all about it. So that's one proposal that will be a thesis. The only reason actually why I'm doing my graduate degree at Buffalo State College is to protect those that come after me so that they have every single right, like they already should and do to get a good education, you know, without any problems, just because they are disabled. That is not a barrier. It, it, you're only as disabled as your society makes you to be. And I truly believe that it is our community and our society and the way that it works, that it, that's what decides how disabled someone is. I think that the, the idea of that thesis being part of your advocacy work and part of nonprofits 
that all fits together perfectly because that's what what nonprofit advocacies are supposed to do is change public policy. And it, it this is one that you've got a lab there. You've got you've got your college campus. So I've got Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Institute, which owes me a few favors. So I can cash in on those. I've also got Oshai, which just knows me and really likes me because I know all the geneticists. They've seen all my posters. They're like, you're going to be here one day. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I might be. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, it actually might happen. I'm like, I, I couldn't believe it. Like a year ago, I was like, no, never. But now I'm just like, I am too impatient of a patient to still be patient because it's been 17 years of patience and no one I believe is looking in the right area. Hint, nudge, wink. I'm pretty sure that I know where to look because I do have a proposal for that as well. I've just been thinking about it for 17 years. and I'm like, that's it. I need to go and make a change because instead of just hoping, I need to turn my hope into action. And instead of fear, I need to turn my fear into the creativity that it is because fear is wasted creativity and hope is worthless without action. And that's what I decided. And that's why I decided, you know, I'm going to do it. And I think that this is, you know, I keep talking about ripples. This is a ripple in the making. You're doing something and it's hard work and it takes, it, re- it requires this study. It requires framing it so that people start to, to pay attention to it. But it's something that in the end, you'll be able to say, oh, I, I made a change at this particular campus. And that, you know, rippled out to other campuses because it was a, a demonstration project. Let's move on a little bit. I want to give you the opportunity to ask me some questions. So I've been where you're at, where you're nearing the end of your education and looking at, well, what's next and what, what are careers? So what questions do you have for me that, that might help you out? I mean, that is just opening up one door. It's opening one can of worms because I don't think that I could go through them all. But if I was to pick a few, I would say, first of all, what made you decide to want to do this type of career? Because I don't know if you have a rare disease, actually. I'm not sure what your affiliation and how you got into all of this is. So I'm interested in that. So I don't have a rare disease that I know of, but I, I got into science through, much like you did, did really well in biology in high school and, and was heading toward pre-med. And during my undergraduate career, I decided, no, I don't really want to be a doctor, but I love the science. And I started work at University of Buffalo Medical School in, in a research lab kind of in, it was at, at Erie County Medical Center, but like in a back building that they called the Pink Palace. Oh, I know where that, I know where you're talking about. I remember that. And I, I worked there and then I had a family. And so I needed to find something that was a little bit more able to provide for my family. And I, I applied to Pfizer and started Pfizer in, you know, 1987. And Oh, that was when I was yeah, <laughs> which is exactly when my daughter was born too. And so we moved out to Connecticut and did my whole career at Pfizer. And my last three projects were rare disease projects. And I was someone who was known for understanding the whole, how the whole company sort of worked and all the pieces of R&D fit together. So I knew this stuff, but rare disease turned it all on its head and challenged me and, and excited me. And I fell in love with rare disease. And then when I left the company, my vision for my company was to teach people or about pharmaceutical R&D. How does it happen? What really goes on? How are decisions made? And I've come closer and closer to just doing rare diseases now, worked with 
Friedrich's attacks. I know lots of people with Ehlers-Danlos. I, I know I have another podcast called Raising Rare. And I just, I love working with rare disease. It's, it's fun to get to actually know people and see the passion and the drive that, that you zebras have. Yeah, I'm, that's actually really amazing. Um, I didn't know that, and I was actually quite curious, but I'm so glad that they turned you on your head a little bit because it probably invokes so much creativity and new beginnings of things that you never thought that you were going to go towards or aspire to that are have got to be amazing because I can't even imagine, first of all, going getting into medical school, you know, because just hoping that I will get in and I will be applying until I do, indefatigably, I will be pursuing them. But, um, you know, I can't even imagine being at your end, you know what I mean? You've already finished, you know, a career and now you're doing more. <laughs> and with these eccentric kind of really passionate, driven, charismatic people that just, I don't, we have the drive and the grit and the perseverance to go the distance because we know that everything is blood, sweat, and tears. I don't know how else to explain it. It's grit and it's perseverance. It's great to be around. And, you know, like we're looking at, we're at different ends of a long pipe, right? You're looking into it to come in. I'm coming out of it. What I want to tell you is that it's not a straight path. Oh, it doesn't look like, I feel like it looks like it's going to be a big fall into like a weird circle. <laughs> and and it'll, it'll be a circle. That would be a nice pattern. It may not be. You You will follow your talent and your passion and it will take you somewhere. And so that's just to me is like don't lock yourself in ever can continue learning 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 and if you stop learning and you feel bored it's time to move on yeah that's actually why i um i i mean i'm like i would love to be in your biology course because i do find the public administration stuff a little bit boring i'm not gonna lie it just doesn't really catch my flavor because it's not quite my flavor but it's a great degree to have in combination with other ones of course well and you'll learn a lot it's it's a it's multifaceted. So let's let's talk about that though. Your your multifaceted stuff. You're a very active patient advocate. And so tell me some of the things you've actually accomplished with your advocacy. What what have you done around being an advocate? Well, um, let's see. I've accomplished keeping myself alive for these 32 years with the 17 years of me heading my own patient care, which actually bit me in the butt a little bit because I did my SSDI appeal. And they said, Robin Powers is not a doctor. That was their first reason for denial. And I'm like, I never said that I was a doctor. I did not. And I never said anything medical, but they looked through my medical files and they saw that I consulted on my case and stuff like that. And they used that actually against me. And I was like, wow. You know what I mean? Because there's some notes that you can't see that a doctor leaves. Found that to be very interesting. So through my advocacy, though, as I've mentioned, I have created ripple effects by acknowledging you know, that rare is not that rare. And I do events um, at Buffalo State College. I actually started them before I actually even went there. I did a radio show. It was um, that we had a doctor on the air and about four or five um, patient advocates or patients of rare diseases. And we had, you know, like an hour long talk um, on the radio uh, for Buffalo State. And it's on their YouTube channel, I believe. And it was, it, was, it was just really amazing to actually have a doctor go on air, on the script, and admit, yes, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is very painful. Yes, it does deserve pain management. Yes, it does deserve recognition for the fact that it's a real disease also. You know, he was very strong points, the things that are always ignored, that, and I just loved that about that. So that was a great awareness activity. 
Um, and then I did another rare disease day where I went around with those signs that they had, like, I care about rare because I believe that it was Nord that put those out. And, you know, we filled those out and I was like, you know what, I know that you guys don't really want to integrate about this, but I'm going to make it. So I run around with the megaphone and I'm like, care about rare because rare cares about you. That's all that I've been changing on campus by now. Um, but, you know, I've been changing that for a while because I've been trying to make them realize that 10% of their college is underacknowledged and up to 26% now is disabled. So the fact that they're, they weren't really engaging was shocking, but I've gotten them to engage and I've gotten people to look at my poster, which is also an advocacy thing because they see me as a patient and as a researcher that has rare diseases. So I'm a patient, I guess, and a medical researcher in a sense, because I apply medical research in a different way right now than I will in the future. But, um, you know, I've still have done some very intricate posters and abstracts, which have brought a lot of advocacy to the table because they see that not only did I produce some kind of, you know, articulate article that they love, but I'm a patient. And then they're like, wait a minute, you're a patient. And then they remember that. And those kind of things create huge ripple effects. I have learned that at the end of the day, you are your only advocate. You can only count on yourself is the way that I feel because at the end of the day, only you know what is going on in your body to the most exact T if you want to, if you bother to, <laughs> like I do. Um, so I feel like that's the biggest thing that I've learned is that I need to learn and I need to continually learn how to manage my symptoms of my disease as it progresses, because I will have to continue to be the, I don't know, I guess, consultant on my own cases the whole entire time. And that's the craziest thing is I didn't know that I was going to be doing this forever. So like now that it's been 17 years, I'm like, I'm going to have to continue to do this for the rest of my life. And it's a lot of work. So it's a little bit frightening. And it's a little bit like, why am I not being paid? How do you see pulling all this together, your patient experience, your academic, your work, your advocacy skills in like 10 years? Where do you want to be? I guess if we're going to talk about my dream, which will be my goal, which will be achieved because I just am, when I, if I say it, I'm going to do it. So I'm planning on creating a degree, which will be a new career path within medicine. It's going to be called a doctor of advocacy because advocacy should be recognized and the person needs to have a lot of knowledge. They're going to have to have a lot of skills through like medical billing, you know, complex case management, you know, rare diseases and stuff like that. And the idea is that this doctor of advocacy would, you know, make sure that another doctor while like performing like a surgery or something, they'd be there with the patient. They would be assigned to complex cases and then they would go there with that patient to advocate for them in case anything was going wrong before like a surgery or something, for example, because my one friend, Rachel, she uh, had a surgery done and they did not scrub in properly and they infected her, her line. And then she got sepsis and she almost died twice. And this was at Global Genes and then at Nord. And this was in 2019, the sepsis and then, you know, and then at Nord. And I actually at Nord advocated for her life and I was part of what saved her life, actually. So, I mean, this is why I believe so strongly in it because. I've also seen my mentor, he just passed away. My advisor just passed away, Roswell Park, you know, the fifth. He was just such a wonderful person, always so happy and giving and strong. And I saw such a strong person be struck down so easily and frighteningly after he sent me an email saying, please promise me that you will do everything that you can to pursue this, you know, idea that you have of a doctor of advocacy because I wish that I had one right now. 
and I was in DC advocating on the Hill and I couldn't get back. And I wish that I had been there to advocate for him because I feel like that's what he was asking for, but I couldn't get there. And then the coronavirus struck when I got back. So I got back just in time. But it, that just that right there was just like, now I have to, because he's asked me to do that and to carry on his legacy. He asked me to, uh, as well as the school has, as well as the park family and the hospital. So I'm supposed to be carrying on the park legacy, which is really huge because I'm not a park. I'm a powers, which, you know, that's okay. But he's like, you know what? RP, RP, because we're both RP. Well, it's been our thing forever. So I know in the sky that he's giving me a high five right now. He's like, way to go, RP, because all that I can think is it's because of you, RP, that I'm doing this. And that's why I want that to be my future. That's why that's my dream, to create this idea and ripple effect throughout just not only our society, but the world. So I want that to be rippled out just through society, too. So I, I guess I've got big aspirations to just help people feel compassion again, love again, hope again, dream again, not feel so fearful about things that they might be scary, but hey, bad things could happen. Any, and that does, you know, that can vary as to what the patient wants. Sorry, patients, but we're not always correct. Sometimes we don't want what's best for ourselves because it's hard to do the harder thing. You know what I mean? But sometimes I have to even advocate for patients I advocate for, like I fill out a HIPAA form and stuff. I have to advocate for not what they want, but for what they need. And then they know that because they've signed a form explaining where I explain at times, if I believe so, I will tell you so, but I will be advocating for what you need, not necessarily what you want. Because that's what I've learned in life is that you need to go for what you need, not what you want. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your story. And uh, this has been great. I want to thank you so much just for taking the time to I don't know, shine the spotlight on me because I just feel like I'm little Robin Powers from Buffalo State College, but maybe I could go somewhere. You know, I feel like I could see the future in front of me. I can see it even though it looks like a big dangerous tunnel. So thank you. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends to give us a listen. We at Salem Oaks love to bring you these stories of the people who are involved in the science, process, and profession of finding and developing new medicines. In our Emerging Researcher series, we are even talking to people just entering the field, and we hope you're enjoying their fresh energy and new ideas. But we need to ask for your help in continuing to bring you this podcast. As creators, we are looking for patrons who want to help us cover our expenses to bring you this service. We have established an account on Patreon that you can use to become a member of the Salem Oaks Acorn or Sapling teams. Members receive exclusive benefits that you can read about at www.patreon.com slash Salem Oaks. Thank you for your support. We truly appreciate it. <music>